Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Catherine Stead. Catherine opened the doors of Bridget Bordeaux based in Sherwood, Nottingham in 2018 in partnership with the Matthew Wallace. We'll be hearing from Matthew a little bit later on in the programme but for now a very warm welcome to yourself Catherine and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Now Catherine um, the purpose of this discussion first and foremost excuse me is to establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we sort of dive straight in by looking at that word leader on its own for a second I'm interested Mm -hmm. to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. A leader, I guess, is somebody who um, is upfront uh, in guiding whether an organisation or a group of people, um, someone who has a very good sort of knowledge and understanding of the group that they lead, um, someone who can communicate really well um, and can sort of reflect on events and sort of put their learning into practice. Um, someone who has a really good understanding, I guess, of the strengths and weaknesses of um, the different parts of their group or organisation that they lead um, and that is capable of listening and getting the best out of people um, and making difficult decisions, I guess, Mm. and leading by example, quite importantly. Mm. There are some hugely important points that can be taken away from that. Absolutely. The need to motivate people, the need to inspire. And for that, there's a mm. degree of people management that needs to come into the uh, the equation there. Um, considering yeah. all of those qualities that you just mentioned there, Catherine, if we think about your own personal leadership style for a moment in the context of the business, how would you define yeah. your approach? Um, well, we're a very young organisation and we're a, a small organisation, really only four members of staff at the moment. But I would say I, I'm, I'm still learning all the time as we go on, but I try to be personable, personal and approachable um, and listen to my staff and my customers and talk to them and be prepared to act on feedback, to make changes. But I think it's really important to be open and to communicate well and to listen to staff and customers and sort of make decisions based on those conversations. Uh, So as I said, I'm still learning at the moment, Mm. but those are important things to me, I think. I think in a way, it's not really possible for us to develop into good employees and indeed good leaders without that learning experience, maybe suffering Mm. one or two setbacks along the way and then embracing that as a learning opportunity. Exactly, yeah, very much so. And being able to reflect on things that have gone well, things that haven't gone so well, and use that to inform sort of future practice. I think that's really important. Mm. And in terms of taking inspiration, um, that's a word that we've mentioned, of course, I'm already inspiration and motivation. Um, what have been some of the key influences behind your sort of style of leadership and the way of leading that you've sort of taken on for yourself, Catherine? Um, well, as I said, I have been in this business a very short period of time, just sort of 18 months prior to... Um, setting up my own wine business. I was actually a school teacher for 14 years mm. um, and sort of a middle manager in, in that career I ended up. Uh, and so I've sort of worked under lots of different leaders and sort of been inspired by leaders, I guess, who uh, 
have a really good understanding of the people they work with and their organisation and really care. I think that's important to care about your staff, to care, to care about the organisation, to be prepared to, you know, do the small jobs as well as, as the important ones, lead by example, get your hands dirty, I guess, that sort of thing. I think all those things are important to be able to understand the people you're leading and the organisation that you're leading. It's comes back to that word humility doesn't it showing that you're on an equal footing with those around you and if you demonstrate that and show that you're looking out for those individuals and their interests it's far easier to take people with you and get them to buy into that collective vision though that's an incredibly important term as well um you also mentioned um the importance of the need to uh, communicate as well incredibly important in the context of the here and now of course with the COVID-19 situation and the fact many of us are having to adapt to uh, remote working um, as well um I'll touch on that in a little bit more detail um, in a second, uh, Catherine, but just backtracking for um, a second. Um, you say, of course, um, you said now multiple times that you've not been in the business for very long. Of course, it started um, in 2018. Do correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, um, no, that's correct. But um, what was the moment that you really knew that sort of going down the self-employed route was the way forward for you? Um, gosh, I don't know, really. Um, I it was my it was my love of wine really the subject of wine um that sort of led me towards this and as I said I'd been a teacher for a number of years but on the side I'd been developing my interest in wine I'd started taking wine qualifications and yeah I just decided that it was something that I would really like to to have a go at and I had you know, didn't have any experience really in the industry or at all of, of running my own business. So it was a bit of a, well, it was a very big risk actually. And you get a lot of advice along the way and mm. sort of people asking you if you know what you're doing. And to be honest, you know, at the start, you don't necessarily um, know what you're doing and there are moments of doubt. But I just thought it's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give it a go. And I'm really pleased to have because, um, yeah, it's, it's you know it's, it's going really well. Obviously, the current situation it brings its own challenges, and we've had to adapt and change mm. over the last few months. But um, really grateful that you know we're we're still selling wine, and we've got we're sort of building a, a strong customer base, which is really good. So yeah, it was a big risk to go into um, something completely different to anything I'd done before. But it's a risk that I'm definitely glad I took. Mm, certainly and um, you mentioned as well that sort of early on it was very much a learning curve for you and that's incredibly important because for those making it in business um, sort of initially for the very first time it's important to remember that you can actually learn from other people and take advice because we're not alone as leaders we're not lone wolves and you can also just as well look at other people that you've encountered throughout your career and that gives you an idea of aspects of leadership that you can take positive and negative and use that to sort of mold your own style so that's incredibly important for those tuning into this you may be considering starting a business to really sort of take into account um before um i let you go catherine i would like to sort of go from past to present term if you will and think about the um the current covid19 situation just in a little bit more detail um it has made us really think about our working practices during this time Mm -hmm. and think about sustainability travel etc do people really need to be commuting into work so Exactly. With regard to the um, that sort of common working office environment, do you think that there is a future for that in the workplace, not just, of course, within your business, but also in the wider world as well? Um, well, our business, obviously, one of the one of the major things about our business is because we're quite small, we can't necessarily compete um, with 
much bigger operations in terms of these big, well-established um, companies that sell wine on the internet. But, but the thing about our or our operation has always been that sort of personal touch and the face-to-face and the discussions about wine and the advice that we can give. And we have actually been pushed into, well, always our long-term goal was to start delivering, and we've actually started delivering wine through this crisis. We decided to shut the shop and to go to delivery only. Um, we have now reopened the shop. But certainly sort of us going to the customer and being able to deliver to people's homes um, has been really important in helping us get through this. We're currently setting up an online shop so that... Um, Customers uh, can just order online. At the moment, we're taking phone orders and we're delivering. We're doing free local delivery. But certainly, it's changing the way we're operating. Obviously, we've got a bar here as well, which obviously has been shut for the last uh, few months. We are looking to reopen that um, from the 4th of July. But obviously, with different practices, we've, we've managed to get permission to get some outside seating. And obviously, we'll need to think about welcoming um, our members of staff back. One of our members of staff uh, has, has been furloughed. So bringing the work team back together and thinking about safe ways to, to continue working. But ours is very much, it's because we're a small organisation, it's very much about the personal touch and sort of um, interactions. So, you know, rather than just people clicking some buttons on their, on the internet and ordering wine, we do like the personal sort of talking to people about wine, being able to advise, knowing what our customers like. So whilst we will adapt and we have adapted, I think that that will always be important, you know, sort of face-to-face or over the phone speaking to people and talking to people about wine because I think that's something that makes our business quite special and unique. Can certainly see where you're coming from from uh, that point of view, uh, Catherine, uh, for sure. Um, it's good to, of course, um, hear that adaptability um, hasn't been too much um, of a problem because that's um, a big word that's been thrown about during this time because business has had to adapt to meet the challenges and meet the new sort of market environment. And, you know, yeah. I can imagine as well that demand for wine on um, line must have skyrocketed during this period for sure. Um, but you yeah. mentioned another really important point um, as well in the sense that there's that human interaction, that side of things as well. And we really, really can't take that for granted either, can we? And I think we yeah. have to a degree before this pandemic came about. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, no, we have adapted and we, you know, we feel lucky that we have been able to adapt fairly easily before lockdown was announced we decided we'd start delivering uh we decided to to close the bar um before we were told to do so because we felt that that was you know so these decisions that we've had to make but ultimately have pushed us into doing things that we were intending to do more in the long term anyway uh so we've and as you said we've been lucky that certainly at the beginning of lockdown um people were uh, keen to, to get the wine in. <laughs> so we've, you know, and I think we've increased our customer base. Hopefully we'll retain those customers, but certainly new people have found out about us during this crisis and new people have started using our delivery service that maybe hadn't been to our premises before. So we do feel uh, lucky and, and very grateful that we have had support from the local community. Very, very positive uh, stuff to uh, hear there, uh, Catherine. And, you know, given how informative it's been actually having you um, on to discuss this uh, today, I think it would actually be brilliant, um, considering we're just about out of time now, to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the programme just to see how things um, are getting on at the business once, of course, we adjust to the uh, the new normal. And hopefully there'll be some positive news to share at that stage as well. Yeah, we'd love to. We'd love to come back and chat some more. That would be great. 
That would be absolutely fantastic. Um, and do take care and do stay safe, Catherine, with all still going on in the meantime um, until we do speak in future, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, as we well know. No, exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Catherine Stead speaking, co-director at Bridget Bordeaux in Sherwood. And now we're joined on the programme by Catherine's co-director, Matthew Wallace. Uh, Matt, good afternoon and thanks ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. A genuine pleasure, sir. Thank you very much as well. Likewise, it's a real pleasure having you join us. Now, Matthew, um, if we uh, kick this off by bringing the topic of leadership into focus first and foremost, I'd like to understand what the word leader actually means to you and how that word resonates on the whole. Um, I guess it's similar to the way you introduced us actually as co-directors. When I think about leadership, instead of kind of, you know, traditional understandings of it about being some heroic individual that, you know, leads their team into battle or whatever. I kind of, myself and Catherine, like the kind of the smallness and then therefore the resilience of actually making decisions together. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. two brains better than one brain. And also kind of being a bit kind of humble and listening to other people and letting other people contribute uh, in terms of what they have and their skills and their expertise. Because... You know, none of us are experts in everything. None of us can kind of, you know, make these decisions uh, in, in, in perfect knowledge. So when, when I think about leadership, I do think about it almost in opposition to the understanding of an individual leader. I think of it as working with Catherine and working with, with our staff members in, in the wine bar too. So letting, you know, the artists in our wine bar put forward their ideas for the mural that we have on one of the walls and then letting them do that rather than kind of imposing my vision or my understanding uh, of what I want. So, so I think co-director and co-leadership is that's what I think about about effective leadership. I think you know, that two brains better than one is something that I think about when it comes to leadership and kind of that. Mm. You need to lead by example on that, and you need to live that rather than giving orders. You need to be a listener, which is kind of not necessarily the traditional way one might think of leadership. Sometimes I'm sure many other people do kind of have the same or similar model to to my understanding of leadership Mm. it's a very collaborative and a very inclusive form of leadership as opposed to that draconian command and control sort of approach and i think that is very positive there's real merit in that because it empowers other people to become involved have their voices heard and almost take on leadership for themselves because venturing out of their comfort zones and having the confidence to do that that's part of their overall development as well which is really important to remember exactly Indeed, yeah. So yeah, so and people are more committed uh, if they're kind of collaborating, and they they have more of a stake, I guess, as well. So you know, Catherine and I, are, myself, are the co-directors. Our stake in in the, our local independent business is is for it to succeed. But also, if we can have other people with kind of a similar commitment to us, and that drive to succeed is easier, um, and our resilience and our success is kind of easier to predict if we kind of win the hearts and minds of other people rather than kind of telling them what to do in terms of leadership, yeah. And I think it's fair to say in the context of the current climate that we need leadership now more than ever, don't we, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that it is an unprecedented crisis that we're having to feel our way through. Um, Catherine did mention as well that it's been a significant challenge um, for Bridget Bordeaux during this uh, time in some ways, but how have you found it behind the scenes adjusting to the challenges that have been brought forward by the COVID outbreak? Because I can imagine there have been one or two for you. (laughs) <laughs> more than a few. I'm um, perhaps that. 
<laughs> there, well, it seemed to be, you know, where, you know, a lot of people seemed to be furloughed or people who had less work to do and kind of, you know, the economy went into hibernation. Some sectors of our economy went into hyper drive, uh, you know, certainly like the NHS. You know, I also work at a university, so that, that's gone into hyperdrive, moving everything online towards blended learning. And then we went into hyperdrive even in our small little business in, in Sherwood, where we accelerated really fast the move to online, the move to deliveries, uh, getting everything online that we could. And because we were so small, I guess we were agile. Uh, but the behind the scenes uh, is one of running around and panicking and <laughs> trying to do everything at once as, as fast as you could. Um, so we did furlough half our staff, uh, but we did keep on other staff as our delivery drivers. So behind the scenes, we got really, really busy really, really quickly. Mm. Once we had lots of people kind of wondering what to do on a Tuesday night, well, they might have a nice glass of wine out in the back garden, mm. uh, especially with the good weather that occurred at the exact same time as this coronavirus, uh, kind of the worst of this lockdown happened. So yes, lots of busyness, lots of running around trying to get everything done at once. And also having a two-year-old and a four-year-old with us in the bar, you know, helping us, mm. you know, put put bottles into the into the back of the delivery uh, car. So yeah, so very very busy would be what I would say, and then trying to cope with everything, and then, but also doing that social leadership, you know, being there mm. for people, and and you know, lots of you know, lots of the larger organisations just couldn't deliver wine. There was a three or four week lead-in, say, from the wine society, but we could, if you rang us, we could get that to you in the locale in the local area, you know, that same day. And that kind of pushed things and made things busy. But also, we were often the only, uh, you know, outside people outside their families that people saw. So people were delighted to see us. Uh, so we were ultra busy, and we would have loved to stay and chat with all of our local community members. Mm. But we had to dash off to the to the next wine delivery. So we did feel it felt like like being Santa Claus, delivering this product that these people wanted, uh, and also being the only kind of social interaction they might have had that week. And I think we've taken that human contact for granted pre-pandemic, haven't we, for certain? Exactly, and, yes, um, we have. On another note, I also said to Catherine that I can imagine online demand for wine must have absolutely skyrocketed during this period, for sure. It, um, it yeah. did, it did. So, I mean, and that's, you know, you, you, you could almost feel guilty, but actually, you know, we have actually expanded our, our customer base and we are selling more wine than we did prior to this to this crisis. So it's, you know, we've taken the opportunity as best we can. So yes, behind the scenes was, as well as being as busy as we were, was also about taking that opportunity that we're presented uh, and, 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 and making that decision, which we did. And I think we, did, we were quite successful, almost guiltily so, you know, that many mm. people are suffering during this time. But our business was, was the opposite. It was thriving. It has been a very difficult and a very challenging uh, time, a very tragic time at uh, that. But um, also, the, it, it is important to remember there are opportunities to come out of this, um, as you say, even if you do feel slightly guilty about that. And it's good to hear that there are some opportunities that are really there. Um, of course, it's been very busy, as you um, rightfully mentioned, um, for yourselves. But how has it been from both a leadership and an employee's perspective, sort of adjusting to the new circumstances and that surge in demand? Because I can imagine that from a leader's point of view, some people don't necessarily need too much motivation to keep carrying on working, whether they're sort of working from home or continuing to operate under new safety guidelines. Whereas with others, you might need to just keep the communication channels open that little bit more and provide just a little bit more reassurance just to keep them, just to keep their head above water in a sense and keep them focused. Well, yeah, to keep people focused on, on, on kind of 
and resilient and successful, you'd be surprised. You know, a lot of people don't come to work just for the paycheck. And certainly, you know, uh, the staff that we furloughed, they desperately want to come back to work as soon as possible. So, you know, come July the 4th, uh, we'll have our bar staff back. And then the other staff that we kept, they were delighted, you know, to actually have that interaction and to, and to be working. Because a lot of people, you know, you don't have to motivate somebody if they want to come to work. And so we were in that lucky position that we were obviously the co-directors, but our staff that worked with us as well, they were socially committed uh, to the job, if that makes, if that makes sense. So mm. the social aspect then comes to the fore as opposed to this, you know, having to motivate workers from, from home. And the same for across the board in my, you know, capacity in my, with my hat, my university hat on as a university employee uh, for Nottingham Tredge University. The move to online was very busy getting lots of work done. But there was no need to motivate us to do that because, you know, we're not, you know, in, in academia necessarily uh, for the paycheck. We're there to kind of engage students, help them learn and help them develop. So we worked really hard in the university as we worked hard in, in Brigitte Bordeaux to kind of satisfy the kind of the non-financial needs, both of ourselves and our, and our students and our customers, if that makes sense. So the, the social the kind of the, the social aspect of leadership, the social aspect of employment at work and what's within organisations came to the fore really strongly. Um, and certainly we wanted to work and we wanted to work across the board. Um, and so the, the leadership is easy, I guess, and the motivation of your staff members is easy uh, when that kind of the social aspect of employment and of being in an organisation comes to the fore. So proper human relations mm. rather than human resources, if that makes sense. Certainly, and um, the renewed focus on mental health and well-being as well is going to play a real part in that. And that's something we shouldn't lose sight of as we do start to see things reverting to normal, that sort of more human side of things. Absolutely. And I think that's a trend that's been continuing. So rather than coronavirus or, or COVID, you know, changing that aspect and that focus on mental health and well-being, it's rather been an accelerant. So I think that this crisis has accelerated, you know, bad things, but also many, many positive things and accelerated our understanding of, you know, how we want to live our lives, what types of organizations we want to lead or what types of organizations indeed we want to be a follower of, you know. And so I guess, you know, that's kind of like servant leadership or followership. In order to be a good leader, you need, you know, really, really good followers. You need really, really good people in your organization. You certainly do. And um, as we begin to adjust to the uh, the new normal, if we focus on the future, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, Matt, I'm interested to understand what you envision for the, uh, the next year as we adjust to the challenges that the new normal will bring and what you hope to achieve as a business as we move through the pandemic. Um, I guess for the business, uh, just continued, continued resilient growth. But also we don't want... You know, we don't want to take over the world with Brigitte Bordeaux. Um, you know, Catherine was formerly a school teacher before we, we set up this business. So the goals of the business are not um, just to survive or just to make money. The goal of the business is for us to have a fulfilling, uh, you know, work-life balance and to do something that is a vocation rather than a job. Again, the social side coming to the fore. So my ambitions for the business are for it to keep growing, but not too fast. Uh, that it actually becomes uh, something that's not enjoyable or where Catherine can't do wine tastings. And then larger, I think the larger focus for everybody will be, you know, the kind of the move online of these kind of, you know, cost savings and larger sales. 
but also then hopefully the renaissance of, of the small high street. Um, I'm not sure about city centres, but certainly I feel, you know, that a lot of people will have used, have used this time of freedom and this kind of independent thinking time, hopefully, to then actually look at their high streets, you know, look at all of these, you know, fantastic individuals working in charity stores, working in all, look at all of these boarded up shops and think, you know something, there is the scope and the capacity and the freedom here for us to have our own business and to contribute to the community. So in a way, the larger sense, I am hoping for and looking for in a positive way, the renaissance of kind of experiential shopping as opposed mm. to, um, you know, just this shopping for a cost, shopping for a price point and actually not having a good experience. So I think it's the return of experiential and therefore maybe a little bit more expensive, you know, interaction, that's the social interaction when one goes shopping. And that's what I think people have missed. You know, they've missed their hairdresser. They've missed having a chat with somebody who knows about their mm. wine rather than just picking it off the top of a shelf because it's got a red label beside it and it's 25% off. So I hope that will be my larger hope for the future. So kind of smaller independent shops like our own and everybody else can actually benefit from, you know, the great service that your local corner shop has provided to you through this through this crisis. I can see exactly where you're coming from, Matt, because we are ultimately as human beings, social creatures, aren't we? So that interaction is something that's incredibly important. And just before I do um, let you go, actually, um, considering the experience that you've had in the academic world and now also in the uh, the business world as well, including crisis management from this period, if you'd like to call it that, um, (laughs) if you were to give some advice to somebody who was perhaps about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, what sort of advice would you give them? Be confident uh, in your own abilities and be confident enough to listen to other people and to admit that you can make mistakes. You know, uh, Shelley is a poet who said we should be able to abide with negative capability. So don't always be going out there and showing that you're a leader. You know, stop, take stock, listen. And then when you make those decisions, you're not rushed and you're happy in the decision you've made kind of collaboratively with other people. So yes, if you're in a leadership position or you want to start your own business, stop, look and listen as if you're crossing the road, and then feel more confident that you'll make the right decisions for the future. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, Matt. And I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the programme alongside uh, Catherine, who, um, of course, left us um, a little while ago. Um, I said to Catherine that, considering the business's plans for the future, it would be fantastic to perhaps have a pair of you back on uh, the air with us at some point to just catch up and see how things are getting on. And likewise, I think it would be fantastic um, to not just speculate on the future, but also have the opportunity to look back and just see exactly what has happened in the time between. That would be brilliant. Likewise, Matt, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Do take care and do stay safe um, in the meantime until we do speak again in future, because as we both well know, there's plenty of time for things to change. And we're certainly not out of the woods with the current COVID situation as of yet, even though we are seeing some return to a form of normality, I suppose. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Scott. Take care of yourself too. And for those tuning in, do stay home where you can, do look after yourselves and do stay safe because it really, really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, but I was speaking there to Matt Wallace, Catherine Stead's co-director at Bridget Bordeaux. Coming up next on the uh, programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but he's most well known for the fact that 
that he's the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, 
whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, 
and the US and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and mm. those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.